This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponco Chicken. Ponco Chicken, if you did not already know, is a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine. Uh, there are stores, if you're not familiar, um, all around the Atlanta area. Uh, there's one in Marietta now. There's one in Buckhead. There's one in Shambly. There's one in uh, Midtown. They're popping up everywhere because Ponco is awesome and uh, they're like family. So um, go check out Ponco if you have not already. It is the home of the award-winning Japanese American Chicken Tender. Just to brag on them a little bit more, they were Verizon Super Bowl Live top-selling vendor, three-peat Taste of Atlanta award winner, uh, Midtown Alliance best taste winner. Just they won all the awards because Ponco is great and Ponco is delicious. So if you are in the Atlanta area and are looking to try something new and good and delicious, go check out Ponco Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. Uh, also, if you have not already, go check out chasemonspodcast.com. It's where all of my episodes to all of my podcasts are, all of my writing that I do, uh, more information on me and who I am um, and why you should be listening to this podcast and reading my work and all of that great stuff. Go do that. Go to Chase Thomas Podcast today. If you're an Apple podcast listener, go ahead and leave me five stars and a rating and a review. That's great. I need it. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and all of that good stuff. Um, you can listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, like I said, Apple, Google Play, everywhere where you can get your podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast will be there. So go do that today. Um, all right. I think that's everything. We can get into today's episode. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I, hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome to a Tuesday evening edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast, a first-timer, and uh, another ATLian that I did not know about, uh, Ingram Smith of the Nolcast is here. Ingram, good evening. How are you? Uh, doing really well. Appreciate you having me, and uh, yeah, congratulations. I understand this is your 400th episode, which is not an easy accomplishment uh, by any means, so hats off there, and uh, happy and excited to be able to join you tonight. Thanks, man. I uh, I appreciate it. Um, how many Nolcast episodes have you done to this point? Because you've been doing it for several years as well, right? Yeah, we've uh, been doing the podcast itself for, I think we're in our 10th season. Um, oh, wow. Started out real early. At the time, we didn't really have a name for it. It was just the the Florida State football podcast because there, there wasn't a whole lot of other uh, places in the space and uh yeah we do uh contractually we do about 75 a year so i imagine you know rough estimate we're probably somewhere between 650 and 750 nice nice i like that um so you're not keeping tally so you're not 100 percent certain you're not doing you're not marking the episodes i am not 100 percent certain and there was some uh ambiguity of ownership i'll put it that way at <laughs> one mm. point in time so we kind of pressed reset on it and did a rebrand with the Nolcast, uh, I think four or five years ago, and uh, could certainly have a definitive number tied to that, but it's uh, not something we, that we've been actively counting. Interesting. Um, so are, are you a local Atlanta, Atlanta guy? Uh, yeah, I'm born and raised in Atlanta and uh, live here today. So, um, you know, I always oh, enjoy giving you podcasts to listen. Yeah. Uh, you said you went to Parkview, I believe I heard in I a previous did. episode. I did. Where did okay. you go? There you go. I went to Woodward. Okay. Uh, so Which one? Aren't there like multiple ones? There are uh, multiple ones up until um, seventh grade, and then everybody from middle and high school all goes to the main campus. Huh. Did not know that. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Well, this is cool. Another ATL guy uh, on the podcast. So I'm assuming you went to FSU for undergrad. I did not. I went to, oh. a, uh, I went to a real small school in Virginia, Hampton, Sydney. 
Hampton Sydney. Okay, Hampton Sydney like Comets rival. Are they um, rivals? <laughs> it's more Washington and Lee uh, rival. Okay, uh, but yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of similar, you know, a lot of, a lot of double named institutions up in that part of the world. There's a um, George Mason. George Mason. Uh, uh, yeah, there's just uh, Randolph Macon. Uh, there's a there's a bunch of them. So yeah. Okay. All right. Well, not to get too into the weeds and uh, double name Virginia colleges, because I want to ask you about the Florida State Seminoles, a team that you are quite familiar with, um, because they've had an interesting last couple months, a lot of turnover, um, a lot of interesting developments on the football team and the administration, um, on the coaching staff, just a lot of interesting things have gone on there that I wanted to pick your brain about. Um, But I I really want to start with from now that it's been a couple months, if you had to assess like what really went wrong for Willie Taggart, what was the defining thing or what about his tenure in Tallahassee stood out to you most of like, this is why he is not the coach at Florida state early February, 2020. So I don't know if there's one thing like one singular moment in time, I would say from an overall standpoint, it was a, um, by all accounts, an individual who didn't have like the organization and, and operational skills to manage uh, a, a brand or an entity that is as as large as as Florida State football. And I don't mean to sound grandiose when I talk about that, but there there's a lot of very simple breakdown of things that happen that you know really you sh- from a operational standpoint shouldn't uh, be allowed to occur and certainly shouldn't be allowed to repetitively occur. Um, Are those individual things, the responsibility of Willie Taggart? No, not really. But ultimately uh, the people that you choose to hire and the people you choose to surround yourself are are all too often the, uh, the individuals whose kind of fate that you share. And um, that's, that's what I would say the, the biggest downfall. And it's impossible to talk about, uh, Willie, without talking about the the hand that he inherited, and really, um, it's you know, Florida State's had an awful lot of dysfunction tied to it, um, and and Jimbo Fisher's and Willie Taggart have both contributed to that uh, over the past three three and a half years. If Jimbo had stayed, do you think they still go through this downturn? Yeah, I do because Jimbo had more or less stopped operating a, pro- a program. There's a, a long, <laughs> long story that could go on uh, in explaining uh, everything that's kind of the, the story behind the story of, of Florida State's recent struggles. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember we were doing the uh, 2017 episodes of the Nolcast, and um, I'm not nearly as involved or, or follower recruiting as closely as I used to. Um, but I still have some friends who are coaches in the in the business and some other people that are actively involved in recruiting. I just kept hearing these things that just didn't make sense um, as far as an involvement standpoint uh, from Florida State perspective. And, and ultimately, what was at point rumor became 100 percent proven fact. Uh, Jimbo Fisher and his staff stopped recruiting. Uh, in about the first or second weekend of September in 2017, it was a, a program that was, uh, by all accounts, just not actively managed, run, navigated. Uh, it's just a bizarre place to see uh, that big of a, you know, Florida State's kind of had its come downs in the world of college football to where it's not the 1990s anymore and they don't finish in the top five every year. But you're still talking about one of the premier brands in the sport that's had some uh just had some curious things happen to it and uh, ultimately it's it's responsible for its own fate. What do you think they've learned the the university and just the football department itself um from the past few seasons? Well, I think there's a real struggle at Florida State with how to manage uh the expectations to be uh, one of the biggest players in the college football world the very realistic makeup of its demographics and the fact that it was um, uh, all female until I believe 47 and maybe not its first graduating class of males until 52. It's an incredibly young institution, uh, particularly when you pair it with, um, you know, some of these more mainline blue blood institutions of the SEC and and some of uh, its competitors that it faces uh, when you just look at the, you know, how long the school has been around and, 
the most part, uh, if you were kind of an established Florida uh, family, either sent kids to UF or to East Coast Ivy League schools. And Florida State's just kind of a, a young school playing a catch-up game. And I think that Florida State over the past couple of years tried to do football on a on a budget and uh, a tight budget at that. And I, I think they've realized that uh, for an athletic program, and I don't want to just jump into the weeds here of <laughs> of uh, non football sports at Florida State, but Florida State's yeah, athletic program it all plays a role. I think yeah, Florida State's it. athletic program has, has made a clear determination that it wants to compete in every sport possible. And and uh, obviously, I have a you know, Florida State background, and that's what I'm, I kind of see things through that perspective. But I have to say, they've done an incredible job. The, you know, the women's softball team wins national championships. The women's soccer team has turned into a, an absolute powerhouse. They compete. They're not Clemson, where 92% of their assets go to football, and, you know, maybe, maybe the girls' tennis team gets new rackets every three years or something like that. Uh, they, yeah. they really want to compete uh, in every, facet and uh, they're trying to trying to figure out exactly how to go about that process on a little bit of a limited budget it's like dark money for college football where we just now need to pay more attention to where the money's going uh it, from university to university just like oh clemson's putting this amount of money here and this is why they're good and just the the little things that we don't see uh on the gridiron that is incredibly important that we just miss and it's really hard to keep up with um <laughs> That's interesting. So do you think ultimately that changes? Because it sounds like to me you think that they've learned, like if they really want to compete and get back to that level um, and get into that top 10 job status, once again, they have to um, reconfigure the funds a little bit. Do, do you think that's what happens? Or do you think, like, is that part of hiring Mike Norvell and, and just paying a lot of money to get his old Memphis guys on the staff? Because he, he did lose them at Memphis because he couldn't afford to keep them. And now he goes somewhere where he can't afford to keep or to really bring back those top level assistants he had when he was really having success at Memphis. Um, what do you think there is any direct correlation there? Do you think that this is a signal that we are, we are pledging to the fans that we are getting back into big business college football? Uh, yeah, I do think that there's been a rather definitive kind of statement made there. And a lot of it's tied to, um, you're right. Some of the guys that they brought from Memphis, either directly or indirectly, um, probably left because Norvell couldn't afford to keep them. They also probably left because, um, with all due respect to Memphis, there's certainly higher stages to play this sport on. And, uh, uh, you know, Florida State's not Alabama, uh, but Florida State's one of the you know bigger programs to play your trade at. And I think is always going to have some sort of appeal. Um, his staff has been impressive. I think the real statement of intent um, has been some of the broader support staff. They went and hired uh, a guy by the name of Bruce Warwick, who uh, to be the chief of staff over football, who was basically doing the same thing for the L.A. Rams previously. So uh, a really major get. And um, they've had a, you know, they have bumped the support staff, uh, Chase. They've they've given uh, a lot of indication that they want to play at the highest level. At the same time, they're not, you know, <laughs> Georgia's just kind of printing money right now. There's uh, there's other yeah. schools out there that are uh, competing from a financial perspective at uh, at a place that Florida State's going to have to always probably accept that at least for the next thirty or fifty years, absent. Uh, you know, Florida State doesn't come up with their own T Boone Pickens or something like that. Uh, Florida State's <laughs> going to have to kind of, kind of moneyball this to an extent. Uh, and you know, it, look, they're not they're not Southern Miss or something like that. I'm not trying to put Florida State as a a lesser than, but they're they're not going to be able to win battles by checkbook alone. So they've got to try to kind of find the place where uh, there is that competitive balance of of assets spent, but also assets spent. Uh, in the in the wisest possible fashion. Do uh, where's your gut? Do you think they ultimately catch up to Clemson in the next couple of years, or do you think that it's just gonna be one of those things where you think Moneyball and that like you're kind of just hoping you have that right season in that Auburn zone where you have this Goliath in your conference like Alabama, and every five years you have this run where you beat Clemson, you beat Virginia, you beat Virginia Tech, you beat everybody you need to. You go undefeated, you get in the playoff, and then the chips fall where they may. Do you think that's more of who they are? And then the other years, they go eight and four, nine and three. They recruit better, but the days of FSU, 
going starting number one and finishing number one um are are just not a thing that's realistic anymore do you think that you kind of have to adjust expectations to the point where it's not where they were the willie taggart era but more of like just always pretty good but like just not being in the national title conversation every single year. It's more like once every Well, five. yeah, certainly not every single year. I think the ceiling's still there for Florida State. When it clicks at Florida State, it normally clicks pretty good. Uh, when I think it, it may be a battle of realizing that um, you're, you're, you're going to kind of build it and, and tear it down every five to eight years or something like that. I, I mean, I'm Obviously, these these aren't exact time frames, but you're going to, I think, really have to try to build for that two to three year window to where your opportunity really comes together. I don't know it at, if you're Florida State right now um, that you're going to be able to spend the money necessary uh, to constantly compete against LSU, Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, Clemson, uh, all the schools that uh, they directly compete against and do so in a manner where you win major recruiting battles every single year. Um, so I think Florida State's steal, a ceiling is still as high as anybody in college football, uh, but there's probably a realization over the past four or five years that the the floor is a little bit lower than the fan base uh, has wanted to acknowledge either. So you've already kind of answered this question, but Mike Norvell, what do you think he's already doing right? I know you brought up the chief of staff from the Rams. I guess Ed Reed was committed to Going back to the U, so you couldn't get Ed Reed there. But um, which is this is a new position, like this chief of staff stuff. Is that just popping up now? Is that a new college football thing? If I just missed this, I don't understand why this is now a thing. Yeah. Um, yes and no. What what it is is all these schools are looking for a way to basically spend as much money as possible on yeah. <laughs> on college football <laughs> and their staffs and give people you know silly titles and. And uh, have basically, it's all a chase after what Nick Saban's done at Bama uh, okay. and the, the offensive and the college shirt army that he turned out and, and unleashed, and you know everybody having two to three recruiting assistants and all just the ridiculousness that that Saban's brought there, and everybody's been kind of forced to chase. Um, is there anything Norvell has done thus far that concerned you? Is there anything about this off season that Florida State as a whole has done that's concerned you? Um, as a whole, Florida State and Mike Norvell, it's been a nice little honeymoon period. I think he's done really well uh, on the recruiting trail as well could be expected. Uh, the focus is very much turned to the 2021 class, which will be their first uh, real staff. As far as what he hasn't done well, no, I don't think um, – I think – He's just going to have to kind of get comfortable with the position and get comfortable with coaching at a school like uh, at, like Florida State. But when you go and you hire Memphis as head coach, you, you kind of know that that's not going to be like an immediate hand-in-glove fit. Um, but I don't think at this point in time that there's been a whole lot of steps gone wrong. I also don't know that at this point in time there's been a whole lot of opportunity to do things wrong. I mean, you're going to go in and you're going to uh, – convince a lot of people that you want to win and that you're going to hire a good strength and conditioning coach and all the other things that, you know, new coaches get to uh, yap on about uh, as they immediately take a position. Um, but he's been really impressive with the composition of his staff, who he's been able to get to join him. Um, it would appear as though he's got either his first or second option at almost every position. Um, so, so far the Florida state and its support is, uh, is very excited about what they have with their, with their new head coach. On the field, um, I think we've all been very. Um, it's just, it has been so sad that the DeAndre DeAndre Francois days. It, you know, what it feels like forever ago. That Ole Miss Florida State game with DeAndre Francois that mm-hmm. feels like forever ago. And I mean, I was I remember before a couple seasons ago, just like I think Francois could be a Heisman candidate. Like being so in on Francois and what I saw there, I was like, I, I really like this dude. And then the just obviously just nothing but dark times at quarterback since then. Um, it turns out uh, Alex Hornibrook was not the answer in Florida State last year. Um, and James Blackman, I think, has actually lost 10 more pounds since we started recording this <laughs> podcast. So I don't think he's probably the long-term answer at quarterback in Tallahassee. But you got my guy Chuba Purdy, which I'm a big Brock Purdy guy in Iowa State. Love that dude. Mm-hmm. And um, you flipped him. That was kind of a surprise. Like they, they actually recruited quarterbacks because that was the thing that they've harped on during the Willie Taggart era was that he didn't sign any quarterbacks and 
Norvell's like, no, I'm going to sign all of them. So how is the QB situation looking right now heading into 2020? Yeah, so he signed two uh, quarterbacks. He signed uh, the Purdy kit, and then he went down and signed uh, Rotomaker out of Valvasta. Um, so two pretty accomplished uh, quarterbacks, two guys that are uh, physically gifted but also appear to have a decent grasp on uh, you know what to do when it comes time to to play in the game on the on the whiteboard. Um, and they just got a commitment from a 2021 kid today. So you know, for them to or yesterday, so Florida State fans are. <laughs> are very enthused that the quarterback position is being addressed again. Uh, it was just, there's there's so many crazy things with the Willie Taggart error, but the idea that you went through as many signing days as you did with that guy and never managed to sign a high school quarterback is something that I'm uh, still having a hard time figuring out exactly how that happened. Uh, so yeah, they've, uh, they've addressed it and Florida state's done really well. Uh, Chase to circle back, not something that I'm, you know, disappointed in, but to, to not blow nothing but, you know, garnet and gold smoke at all your listeners. Uh, Florida State has not done well when it comes to the the, the transfer portal. Um, there's been a lot of people that they've been involved with that have chosen to go to Miami, chosen to go to Georgia Tech, chosen to go uh, to places that aren't Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure why they haven't had as much success uh, via that avenue. Um, but that's one place where they've they've swung and missed and if you've watched any Florida State games recently, you know that uh, uh, you know Florida State's offensive line has looked real similar to like is that Florida State or is it Brookwood High School? I don't know because <laughs> yeah. it looks like just paper playing against ACC and, and moderately high level uh, football. So they desperately need tackles and they haven't been able to get one yet. And that's one place where. Uh, Fans probably haven't seen as much success from Mike Norvell and his staff as maybe they'd like to. Um, we haven't really talked about this part, but I think this is something that's also interesting to monitor is that you know that your president's who's kind of like the interim AD is not staying long. Is that a concern thinking about a new AD coming in or a new administration coming in? Like what is the status on like that transition and what's going on there? Is that something that you're thinking about another Florida State fan should be monitoring? It's something that certainly has been in the conversation. It's one of the reasons why Florida State desperately did not want to fire Willie Taggart this year because they didn't want to go out and search again with a interim, a guy who's had the title removed, but uh, um, a guy who is basically just an extended interim athletic director, uh, a president who has been wildly successful. Uh, Chase, are you in your mid to late 20s? Is that right? I am 28 years old. 28 years old. Okay. Uh, so I'm in my mid-30s. Like, when I was growing up, the the academic perception of Florida State and where Florida State's gone recently and in the academic world are two very different stories. Like, Florida State's a mm -hmm. top 20 public university now, which is not <laughs> – uh, was not in anybody's imagination um, maybe 15 years ago. And so the, the institution – It a problem for Chris Ricks, I think. Yeah, Chris Ricks, you know, maybe maybe that was it. Maybe that was the moment in time <laughs> where if, if only the academic standards could have been higher, uh, you could have rid yourself from the, from the downfall of the dynasty there. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the, the institution has been wildly successful. The president they, that they have – uh, will be remembered as one of their great kind of transformational uh, leaders in the institution's history. Uh, but they are in, in kind of a, a period of, of change. And it's one of the reasons why um, Florida State fans had some real trepidation about who ultimately that they would be able to go out and convince to come to town with the idea that uh, very, you know, probably 65 to to better odds, 65% to better odds that you're going to have a new president and you're going to have a new AD within the next 18 months. Um, all that to say, are we just, are we, are we sure that Florida state's just not a basketball school now? Are, can we rule that out? Yeah. So the same, <laughs> the same idea, that I talked about, like high school me trying to wrap my mind around that Florida State's this respected public institution is the same high school me that can't figure out like, oh my God, Florida State has turned into one of the better basketball programs in the country. Now they don't have, 
you know, national titles. But from a consistency standpoint, Florida State's as good as anybody over the past three or four years. It's been unbelievable to see uh, what they've done, what they've built, the consistency that they've had in the ACC, where almost, I mean, I don't mean to bore everybody by talking about college sports and the finances before behind it, but almost everybody in the ACC values basketball at a higher level than Florida State does. I promise you. It's, it's almost everybody else's main game. And for them to have the success that they've had in that sport uh, with some of the limited resources that uh, Leonard Hamlin's had to work with, it's, uh, it's really been incredible. I mean, and we have to mention just the guy doesn't age. Like Leonard Hamilton, um, whatever he's doing, it's he's, working. Cause we all need to find it. Yeah, because Hamilton has basically looked the same for the past uh, 17, 18 years. And that's not hyperbole. That's pretty no. much kind of where he is in the aging process. It's amazing. Shout out to him. Um, last thing, and we'll wrap up here. What are your expectations looking at the 2020 schedule for Florida State? What should we what should be a realistic expectation for Florida State fans heading into this fall? Um, yeah, without the real success in the transfer portal, being able to sustain, um, being able to to successfully recruit an offensive tackle, um, I think if you win eight, <laughs> yeah, if you win eight games next year, you've got a miracle worker. I mean, I think Florida State fans need to have. Uh, some some reasonable expectations for how next like year plays out. 2019, I think Say, is the best case scenario. I'm sorry. I look at it like Louisville 2019, mm-hmm. or like the post Petrino Scott mm-hmm. Satterfield buzz. Yeah, and you start to see real aspects of progress yeah. at the end of the. Hundred percent agree. Absolutely. Um, because I'm looking at the schedule, it's not a terrible schedule. Like this, it's not a terrible this, schedule. This, this, you have some dumbassery scheduling by playing, you know, West Virginia and Boise State and stuff like that. Um, it's not a terrible schedule, but it is odd to not have any bye week within the actual conference schedule. Um, yeah, so th- there's some challenges there, and then playing Syracuse um, on four days rest is, it's, you know, that, that's a challenge for everybody. But uh, yeah, it's. You know, there's there's some aspects of positivity out there. Um, you also have to <laughs> realize that the same guys uh, that if you're a Florida State fan, you've been dog cussing and uh, damn near throwing the the remote at your TV and breaking it uh, are going to be many of the same characters that are lining up on this year's offensive line as well. Well, address that unit. I think you can you know, only have but so much optimism when it comes to uh, what the the end product's going to look like on the field come Saturdays in the fall. Yeah, well, I'm optimistic. I think they're moving in the right direction. We'll have to see how it all ultimately unfolds. But um, yeah, from a really from good. a micro standpoint, I think there's reason to be uh, have some skepticism. From a macro standpoint, with where the direction of the overall program's headed, I think Florida State fans should should have a decent degree of confidence that the ship's pointed in the, fir- the right direction for the first time in a while. Yeah, I agree. Well, Ingram, this has been this has been great. I appreciate the time tonight. Um, what can we check out from you this week on the Nullcast? Yeah, so we'll have a uh, podcast up tomorrow night, just kind of a, a look back over uh, the class itself. You know, National Signing Day is not the the National Signing Day that I grew up with, where you got seventeen kids committing by nine thirty in the morning and stuff like that. Uh, you know, the implementation of the early signing day has had all kinds of uh, impacts across the board in college football, but it's certainly made uh, this particular day a little bit boring, but we'll have a final uh, review of the 2020 class and look ahead towards spring and uh, some of the junior days that are associated with the pursuit of 2021. All right. Well, go check that out. Keep up the great work, man. And uh, here's to 400 more for me, 600 more for you. Let's just keep it rolling on the podcast content farm front. Thank you for having me. Been a lot of fun. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast. Longtime friend, John Taylor. He's been traveling the world, but he is back stateside for a very normal, very, uh, you know, very good time for baseball, very good time for elections everything is going swimmingly with the new york mets the boston red sox are doing great stuff like everything's great john 
Nothing's on fire. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. I am genuinely surprised that if a Mookie Betts trade is going to happen, and the whole there seems to be just a giant range of outcomes there that the Red Sox didn't try to news dump it like during this whole Iowa caucus mess. I'm actually kind of surprised by that, but yeah, things are things are a little wild in the base. Like they still feel weirdly unsettled in a lot of corners of baseball, despite the fact that pitchers and catchers is about a week away at this point. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten that we're this close. It doesn't. I, I think it's because January felt like it went on for three and a half years. That was the longest month we've had in a long time. That I just haven't even thought about the fact that pitchers and catchers are reporting. But um, Nightingale reported on Twitter a couple of days ago, Bob Nightingale, where he said um, the Red Sox report spring training in eight days, and the biggest surprise will be if Mookie Betts is still wearing a Red Sox uniform and not in Phoenix in Dodgers camp with David Price joining him. Um, the big hang up there is obviously getting the Red Sox to pay a portion of David Price's salary. Uh, this is just, it's so weird also seeing the San Diego Padres get in on this. Like the team that just, <laughs> if you're talking about a team with limited means and who has just been a, just a small market team for our lifetime to be getting in on the Mookie bet stuff and then paying Machado right before that. And the Red Sox being the team that just has a net worth of 3.2 billion um in Forbes the most recent value and just as a note uh Henry and Werner purchased the Red Sox for 700 million um it's been pretty profitable for them things have been have been going pretty well they had the most world series titles in the 21st century of any MLB team but you know sometimes you just got to cut costs sometimes you just can't go over 10 years 300 plus million sometimes you just have to say nope we're good on having one of the top 5 uh at worst top 10 players in major league baseball for the rest of their prime no we'll hard pass on that front uh folks just can't do it just can't do it sometimes you've got to decide that what you need to do is stop contending and slam shut the window mm-hmm. for a year because the, the thing that's always kind of confused me about the mookie bet situation so the red sox have had multiple opportunities to, to try to get him signed to a long-term deal but either they have misread you know the amounts they've offered him too little or maybe Mookie is just dead set on hitting free agency because he wants to get every last possible dollar. And I, I fully support that. Every player should try to get every last dollar owed to them. And Mookie is one of those, you know, 20, 25 guys in the league right now who, if they're in free agency, can actually get that kind of money. You know, I, I know we all thought the same about Harper and Machado. Um, but, you know, I, I think Mookie even more so, he doesn't carry, I think, the same quote-unquote personality baggage that those two do. He's a much better defender than Harper is. He's... Uh, Art, he's a better base runner than either of those two. He is arguably, you know, a better hitter. Of course, those guys have enormous ceilings offensively. So you, you can make the easy argument that yes, this is a guy who, who who can get the money that he wants in free agency. And so why take less from the Red Sox if they're offering less? But fine, if, if that's if that's how the Red Sox feel, if they feel like it is inevitable he's going to go to free agency, well then you have two ways of doing this. You can either say what they're apparently doing now, which is screw it. Okay, we'll trade him. We'll try to get the prospects we can, and we'll move on without him instead of just you know taking a draft pick when he leaves. Or and here's a crazy option for a team that has a lot of money and just won a championship and has a really good core. You try to build around and make one last good run. And I'm not saying you mortgage the farm or what's left of it. You know, you don't trade away your best young players. You don't trade away your prospects, but you you flex the financial strength you have. And you make moves in free agency, you get creative, you get clever. I mean, isn't that why they, well, theoretically, at least that's why they hired Heim Bloom, a guy who, you know, definitely made his reputation in Tampa as someone who could get, you know, turned for, you know, I wouldn't say chicken shit into chicken salad, but he definitely, you know, could rub two pennies together and make a dollar appear. You know, these, the Rays are and were and are very good at unearthing um, low cost impact players. So you think, okay, now you get to do that on an even bigger scale. Now you can actually afford to shop at the higher end of the market. I just feel like why, why close that window now? Why not take that shot with Mookie? And if it turns out by around the deadline, you know, you're, you're languishing, you're languishing out of the, out of the postseason or out of a postseason spot. You know, you're, you're 10 games on the Yankees in the division or whatever. You're, you're not in a wild card spot. You can trade him then. The package won't be as great. Sure. But you can still get something for him. And at least you try I just, I to me, the hard thing about under the hard thing to understand here is why Heinblum wants to start his Red Sox tenure, his tenure as a Red Sox GM, 
by trading the best, most popular player on the team and basically announcing, you know, with no conditionals, this team will not contend in 2020. Like you are, you Red Sox fans are better off spending your time and energy focusing on something else because the ceiling for this team is now officially, you know, if Mookie goes like 88 to 90 wins. And that's just, I mean, maybe that's enough to get you in the wild card race, but it's not enough to put you in the top with the likes of the Dodgers, the Yankees, maybe the Astros. I guess we have to see how that goes. It's not enough. And that's just what confuses me is given those two options, you trade him or you keep him and you, and you try to build around him for one last run. I don't understand why you don't do the latter unless, as you've kind of noted, unless your goal is just not spending as much money anymore. This is a good line from the Boston Herald um, and a piece about Mookie Betts and trading him. Um, a greater challenge awaits Sox fans and it could arrive any day. So time is running out for an idea. What exactly is the proper way to celebrate fiscal responsibility? And, and that's kind of where I land too. It's like, why, why are we celebrating teams getting cheaper? Why are, I know this is a, a topic I, I've, you know, I've come on this podcast. But. Well, no, it's like, why are we celebrating the Red Sox trying to be the Rays? Like, that's well, the thing. That's what all of this is. That's the biggest thing. It's like, why is this big market, this team that's worth $3.2 billion, trying to downsize and pretend that they're the San Diego Padres. Well, the, That's the biggest thing. It's like, what are you this doing? Is always, this is kind of what I thought might be the case with Bloom, because I think this is something you saw play out similarly with Andrew Friedman in LA, which is, you know, when, when the, mm. when the Dodgers hired him, the expectation was this guy was so smart running the Rays, He was able to get so much out of so little. Now imagine what he'll be able to do with all the money in the world. And you know, this crazy farm system, you know, and instead he's just kind of run them like the Rays, but with a little more money. You know, the Dodgers, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly they've made, they've made splashes, they've made big trades, they've, you know, they've, they've, made, they've handed out some contracts, but they haven't really given out that one, like, you would have thought they'd be all over. In free agency, they have not. Yeah, yeah. they haven't, like Garrett Cole, Anthony Rendon, Machado, Bryce Harper, Steven Strasburg, pretty much any major free agent, they have just not been there. Either they've not been in the chase at all, or they've ended up finishing second for you know a variety of reasons, or third, or, or whatever it is. They, they haven't. They haven't. Appeared. I've talked to Bill Plunkett about this of the OC register. He's been. He's told me flat out that like no, they're just not interested. And like you can go ahead and pencil up. Like I, we were talking about this beforehand. Like this was a couple years ago now with Machado and Harper, where it's just like he was like they're not getting in on this. Like people talk about the Dodgers because of their ownership, but it's like Freeman's not going to do it. Like this is people are overlooking the fact that they're operating like you said, like the Rays. They're just that's not what they're gonna do. They're not gonna sign anybody in free agency. That's just not who they are. They'll pay their own guys, but they're not gonna go out and sign um Garrett Cole. They were never seriously in the right. And what I find so strange and, and you know, you could argue that like Cole wanted to be a Yankee. Rendon didn't wanna be in that particular part of Los Angeles or that particular part of Southern California. You know, I already forgot. Um, about that. It's very <laughs> funny. Like, you know, you can make, you can say that there are reasons why certain guys just either didn't work for them or wouldn't have been a fit. But like you said, they just really haven't been in the running for a lot of these guys. And what's interesting about that is that this whole idea of financial flexibility and of having this killer farm system isn't just so that you can run out a team where everyone is making $3 million a year. It's so that you can then afford to use that. You know, the flexibility comes from having those cheap guys around so you can splurge for the higher end players that you don't have on your team already. You know, that that's what I find so confusing about this whole enterprise, like what the Dodgers do with the Cubs is another team that's just woefully wasted the advantage they have uh, with the Red Sox, certainly arguably with the Yankees and still Cole. And I think you could, you could probably make the case that, you know, Cole was the guy they were waiting for all along, but regardless, you know, the last, the couple years before that, they certainly, um, didn't do as much free agency wise as I think you would have expected a team with the Yankees' resources to do. Um, the whole point of financial flexibility is so that you can sign the stars, while but they don't bankrupt you in the process, or that you can afford to make mistakes in free agency. Because no, there's no such thing as a perfect free agent signing. You know, every every free agent will you know will end up being a, a drag toward the end because as they get older, you know, the players decline. But it's just so strange to me that, that you would choose to, the teams would choose to operate in a way that, you know, instead of taking advantage of the financial resources they have, instead of a team like Red Sox, which is, you know, I, in the, the BP annual, and I wrote the Red Sox essay for, I basically called them, you know, a very baseball Disneyland. They print money. 
there's no way they will not be profitable. They will always be profitable unless you choose to run them like a small market team and then make it so that nobody actually wants to watch the games anymore. Although then that, that turns into a whole argument about the fact that profitability for baseball teams no longer is connected to things like ticket sales or TV viewership or anything like that, because revenue streams for baseball teams have just become completely divorced from actual on-field results. But that's the whole much bigger topic that affects pretty much every team in terms of, you know, why we are at where we are in terms of, you know, tanking and and baseball economics. But when it comes just solely to a team like the Red Sox, it's strange to see, you know, the richest team in baseball, or at least the team that has for the last two years run the biggest payroll of baseball, possibly even before that, I don't recall off the top of my head, decide that they just don't want to spend anymore when they have this opportunity, this one last opportunity, it sounds like, to build a winner, you know, around their MVP candidate. It's it's just baffling, and it's just it, you feel helpless because you're just like this is just what all these teams are gonna do. But like, if you're Manfred, how do you step in? How do you do? You, do you want to step in? But I don't. Like, I don't think I you would just, do just because he's his his role is not necessarily what's best for the game of baseball. You know, you can he certainly has made enough moves or done enough things or said enough things to suggest that he really cares about you know the way the game is perceived and marketed and and all the you know various um, pace of play initiatives and everything else he's tried to do. But, you know, the role of the, the commissioner, first and foremost, is, you know, he's elected by the owners. He is their representative for all intents and purposes. He is his job is to make sure that they are getting what they want, that the teams are getting what they want. And the owners have almost unilaterally, it seems like, decided that what they want is contention, but only if it's affordable. And that if they don't feel like, you know, they're getting their, their dollars worth, so to speak, then they're not really going to try. And Manfred, is, I don't think, is one really to say anything. Because his eye is on the bottom line, ultimately. Um, and like I said, if you have a, a, a revenue system or, a, or revenue streams, rather, that are just that don't really connect anymore to, you know, what the actual games on the field are, are doing, you know, if it's not really connected to wins and losses anymore, then in his mind, what does it really matter if the Red Sox don't want to pay Mookie Betts? You know, especially if Mookie Betts ends up on the Dodgers, well, great. Then another really good team has Mookie Betts. What's you know, what's the real issue there? You know, I, I, I think. Manfred in particular cares a lot more about the superficial stuff, the stuff you can see on the field with regards to pace of play, with regards to like the, the three batter minimum for relievers, with regards to, you know, the pitch clock stuff that makes the game faster and thus keeps people more paying more attention to it. Or at least I imagine that's the, the calculus than he does about what's going on, you know, in, in the front offices and what's going on, 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 you know, with the accounting because ultimately, baseball is still wildly profitable. It's, it's making record revenues. It's setting new records for revenues every single year. Teams are making dollars, are making money hand over fist. Ultimately, you know, if a, if a few of them decide that they don't really want to spend as much as they could, does that really matter to him, or does it matter that the game is faster and more and more youth friendly and you know whatever else it is that the the commissioner's office cares about in terms of presenting the sport of baseball? I, I think that's short sighted. Certainly, I, I you know I, I think that there's you know, the tanking and, and the way the game's economics currently work is a much bigger threat to the stability and health of the game than, you know, whether a game is three hours and 10 minutes versus three hours and, you know, six minutes or whatever it is. But it, it's really clear that Manfred is focused on one over the other. And that, again, as, as commissioner, you know, he's, he's there for the owners and the owners have made it clear that they really just do not want to spend anymore. And I imagine in part because, you know, with these, with these most recent CBA negotiations and obviously the big one coming up in 2021, you know, they want to, they want to bring the hammer down on the players and the player association. And this is part of doing it is kind of the setup of, you know, kind of try to relevel, I think in their mind, even though it's still the playing field's always been kind of heavily tilted in their favor, relevel things so that they have as much, if not more power than the players when it comes to financial matters. Yeah. Well, of all the trades, as a Red Sox fan, what would you, if you have to resign yourself to the idea that this is this is happening, there's nothing I can do about it, do you prefer the packages that have been rumored for the Dodgers or the Padres? Or are you just like the biggest Will Myers guy and we haven't talked about it? I was going to say because I want no part of Will Myers, who is just not a useful player. And it's not even, it's not even so much that Will Myers is a bad player. When healthy, he's a perfectly fine player. He's obviously not Mookie Betts, but there's only one Mookie Betts. It, to me, it's the idea that 
in order to tr- in, like it's not it's the injury added to the insult of not only are you trading Mookie Betts, but you're also taking on Will Myers' salary. It's why did you trade Mookie Betts in the first place? Then, if this was all about saving money, why are you taking on Will Myers' crappy salary? Like I, you could make the argument, depend, and I don't know obviously what the negotiations are. I don't know what the prospect packages look like. Certainly, you could argue that you'd rather have prospects from San Diego's farm system than Los Angeles's especially because it doesn't really seem like the Dodgers are inclined to include either of Gavin Lux or Dustin May. And that's really, you know, ideally who you would want, but obviously that's not going to happen. But like the, the idea of having to swallow Will Myers's contract is just offensive. It, it's just something where you just, it just, it exposes completely bare that the point of this is not getting the best player package in return, that this is about money and that this is about clearing salaries, shuffling like payroll decks and so you know, whereas at least I think with the Dodgers, I mean, I know the Dodgers is its own thing where you would try to include David Price, which is another, but at least there you can, you can make an argument. And I, it's not an argument I'm terribly fond of, but you can make an argument that Price is, you know, 32, 33, however old he is now. He's on the, he's on the downswing of his career. He has not been very, but he was fucking awesome last he, year. He only pitched about a hundred innings last year. And I know the injury was something that's a, a assist and his wrist. He was good though. Was fine. The way they talk about him, I was like, his numbers were his good. numbers are fine, and I think there's probably some worry going forward that he's not going to be as um, reliable or durable as he was in his in his in his prime. I mean, obviously, I mean that's that's how it goes for everybody. That stuff is going to decline, and that you're still on the hook for you know ninety some million dollars, a hundred million dollars, whatever it is for him going forward. And that realistically, like you know, that's what you want to get rid of. It's not so much you want to get rid of Mookie Betts as you want to get rid of David Price especially now when Chris Sale's big contract is about to kick in and he looks like he has his own, you know, durability and injury issues and his own stuff issues as well. But certainly, I mean, if you're going to bet on any one of those two, it's the guy who throws 98 miles an hour with a video game slider, as opposed to the guy who is older, throws, doesn't throw as hard, doesn't strike as many guys out and just seems to be also kind of just surly and unpleasant, which I'm not necessarily saying trade David Price because he doesn't get along with the Boston media. That's no one ever does. So that's not really a, that's, that's not a strike against him. But I have to imagine to a certain degree that there, there probably is a feeling that like he's just not a good fit necessarily for Boston, um, which, again, it's own whole other giant topic, especially given that you know David Price is a black man and black players. Boston and black players, it's just not a – boy, that's a heavy, weighty topic right there. But I, I think ultimately it probably would end up being the Dodgers because if, if – I don't subscribe to this. I don't – you know, I'm not, I don't support it, but if you're going to trade Mookie bets, you might as well get rid of some more money on top of it. And I, I don't know. I see what you can get for uh, Pedroia. You're taking Pedroia. <laughs> Boy, too. this, this off season has <laughs> just been such a bummer for Red Sox fans. Like you're going to trade Mookie. Maybe you lost your manager of your world series team. There's probably a punishment coming for whatever it is they did in 2018. that got Cora fired in the first place. Pedroia's career is almost certainly over at this rate. You know, the biggest free agent signing is your choice of either Juan or uh, sorry, uh, Jose Peraza or Martin Perez, which is just miserable to think about. Resigning Mitch Moreland, you love the to best see free it. agent in the game went to the Yankees, who are almost who are this, the lock favorites for the division, are almost certainly the favorites for the AL pennant, and are probably along with the Dodgers your favorites for the World Series. Really, just a brutal winter all around. And again, this this is why I just with, with the, I go back to that idea of. Of, is this really how Heimblum wants to start things? You know, bad as everything has been, he's going to make it exponentially worse by getting rid of the best player on the team. Especially because I just feel like timing-wise, I, I feel like the Red Sox have, to a certain extent, painted themselves into a corner with bets because it's too late in the offseason for them to do anything else. You know, they, they were not active on any level of free agency, except, again, for guys like Peraza and Perez and, and Mitch Moreland, who only really only just resigned too. Um, they, they just, they were not in the running for any major free agent. It, it's, if they keep bets, it almost feels like even more of a waste because it's like, well, the team around him probably isn't, is, I don't think it's good enough to win the division. I don't think I would take them over a healthy Yankees team at any, at any level. Um, I certainly don't think they're, they're the, they're good enough to win the pennant as is. I mean, you, you can argue, and yeah, just two years ago, this team won 108 games, you know, anything is possible. But it almost feels like if you're going to keep bets, then it, you, you wasted the offseason. You should have spent the offseason adding help, like in the bullpen, adding some rotation depth, you know, maybe trying to, you know, adding some, some actual impact at second base one way or the other. You know, instead, those holes still exist. 
This team probably, even with bets, has a ceiling of 90 or 92 wins. It's almost like, what was the point then? You, you've kind of put yourself in a position where you have to trade him because otherwise it's just going to be, it, it looks like it would shape up more likely than not to be kind of a lost year and lost in the sense that you're not going to win a, a World Series. And, and I know, like, I, I would prefer watching a Red Sox team that has Mookie Betts and one that doesn't, and I would much prefer them giving it a shot rather than just saying a screw and throwing their hands up. But it really does feel like, well, if you're going to keep Mookie, you should have done more, you know? Now you put yourself in a position where you almost have to trade him because this team as currently constructed is not good enough to win the division, it's not good enough to win the pennant, it's not good enough to win a World Series. And I don't want to subscribe to that theory necessarily that if you're not good enough to win the World Series on paper in the preseason, then don't bother at all. But when you got the Yankees in the division, a Yankees team that won 103 games, was it, last year? 100 and something along those lines and added literally Garrett Cole? You really had to step up to do something, and the Red Sox did, and now they're in this bad spot where it's, you know, either you go into the season with Mookie and you probably don't win Jack, or you trade him and you make everybody unhappy. I, I don't know. It's just, Heimblum just has really put himself in a really bad spot right off the get-go, and I, I, I just don't know if there was really kind of a full strategy in mind as to what they wanted to do with Mookie. I don't know if, you know, maybe he wanted, maybe Bloom wanted to take a crack at trying to convince him to, to sign an extension. But you gotta you gotta imagine like with one year to go and with the possibility of four hundred million dollars in free agency on the horizon, you weren't gonna convince him to resign. Not unless you offered him a fair market deal of, you know, three hundred fifty million, four hundred million dollars. Yeah. Well, stop me if you've heard this one before, uh, John. Uh a major league baseball team hired an Ivy Leaguer <laughs> as their new general manager. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around, isn't there? James Click, shout out to him, and, and I, I just I love that the Astros were like, "All right, um, we're gonna just uh, hire another uh, another uh, Ivy Leaguer." That uh, that's what I mean. They, uh, we're, we're not gonna go. They kind of yeah, they kind of had to. I mean, they kind of <laughs> you know the dude was a VP of baseball ops with the Rays. This kind of the dude they had to hire in a sense because with the way that team constructed, you know. Leaving all the sign stealing stuff aside, which I know big thing to just say, you know, put that out of put that out of the picture. But you know, with the way the Houston Astros are run and have been created and are and are organized along these very like high level analytics and data like kind of directions, you have to hire a guy who's used to that. You have to hire a guy who comes from a team with that background. You know, and if you don't want to promote internally, and it certainly seems there wasn't much, um, especially I mean, given the way that the that front office kind of got cleared out over the offseason between. Luno and Brandon Taubman getting fired because I have to imagine too that if Taubman hadn't gone on his little tirade, um, he certainly he almost certainly would have replaced Luno. They would have just you know promoted him up to the, to the big role. Yeah. But I, I think like this is this is kind of what they had to do. I mean, there's obviously a much bigger conversation to be had about the pipelines to front offices, and that a lot of them, you know, go through the Ivy League and go through high like. Uh, institutions of expensive institutions of higher education that are predominantly white and predominantly male. Um, certainly, it's it's not a surprise to see that the Astros hired who they hired, either in terms of his, either in terms of his educational background or in terms of his team background. I personally just love like that. I, I think we should all start referring to him as Jimmy Click because that's a mobster name, and mm. I just really like how it sounds. Just Jimmy Click. And it fits for uh, Houston. Um, but I don't know, it, it's kind of, it does. They went from banging to clicking, but I, I think, and just giving him a, a, basically a promotion, you know, that's, cause that, that's what the, that's kind of what the Astros have to do. They have to try to maintain some sense of stability and consistency while also getting rid of all the bad stuff that happened. And so I think part of that, too, is why you had to find a guy from outside, because if you just promote the guy from inside, but the question is, well, this is someone who Jeff Luno hired or who was part of this organization when Jeff Luno and, and you know, these players were doing all these bad things. What's to say this person isn't going to act in exactly the same way? And I think this is the kind of, you know, and, and the same thing holds with Dusty Baker, you know, a man of you know, great integrity and great professionalism and, and whatnot, that you can, you can kind of make the case with them that, hey, things are different here now different in in so much as yeah um the good stuff is staying like dusty baker's all the good parts of aj hinch you know J- jimmy click i'm gonna start doing that jimmy click 
Uh, James Click is theoretically all the good parts of Jeff Luno, but without all the, you know, the bad stuff that caused them to get fired. So, I mean, I think it makes sense for Houston, but yeah, it is, it is certainly disappointing to see that it's, you know, it just feels like there's a stock candidate for ML, for Major League Baseball front offices now. That's just, you know, did you go to an Ivy League school? Are you a white guy? Great, you're hired. You know, that's that. Yeah, that's something I imagine that the league is probably. I mean, I can't say for sure. I don't know, but like, I imagine the league probably isn't too terribly thrilled about that. You know, they want more diversity. I will. I will say, like, from having talked to people within Major League Baseball over the last years, like Tom Ricketts is probably fine with it. Oh, <laughs> uh, Tom Ricketts. Tom Ricketts has got his own problems going on forward. I mean, he's, 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 I'm sure he's watching the State of the Union right now or whatever time that thing actually starts. But um, I know that, you know, for having talked to people at MLB over the last years, like diversity is something they actually do care about. And it's certainly something they want to improve, but it just doesn't seem to help the teams. Teams particularly don't seem to care. You know, they just want the quote unquote best guy for the job. And it just so happens that the best guy for the job is always a white Ivy League graduate. And so that's, I, I don't, you got to find ways to diversify that pipeline. And I think the league would like that to be the case. I'm just, I I just don't know enough about what's going on internally to say like, you know, how exactly you do that. Can we, um, can we laugh about the Mets? Oh, let's always laugh about the Mets. The Mets. I love that the Mets are just a perpetual source of just the stupidest comedy, even on a day when the, with, with everything that's happening in Iowa with the caucus, and then with the Knicks deciding that they wanted to do their their semi-annual like Knicks bit of stupidity, that the Mets just had to come out there and say, hey, the guy who was going to take over for our despised owners within the next five years, uh, no, those despised owners more or less like forced him out. It, it's just too perfect that the Wilpons are just, they will never go away. They are the herpes of Major League Baseball. They are just incurable and permanent, and Mets fans will never, ever be rid of them. It. It, it just makes me cackle all the time. From the New York Post. Sources close to the situation are confirming that the billionaire hedge fund manager, uh, Steve Cohen, who's going to buy the team, um, is ending negotiations with Will Ponds on his purchase of an 80% stake of the franchise. According to those sources, Cohen is deeply unhappy with the Will Ponds changing the terms of the deal at a very late stage and has decided to walk away. That last part is important because he did this like five years ago. Yeah. That family did it five years ago and they just didn't learn their lesson. They just, they operate like just mob bosses. What is this? They've done this multiple times. We already know the other stuff. Just what the hell are you doing? I guarantee this. I guarantee you're going to keep control. Like they wanted to keep control. I know that's what what I was going to say. I guarantee this is something where they said, even though we're going to be minority owners, we're still in charge of essentially we're the final say on baseball operations. And right, yeah. rightfully so, I'm sure Steve Cohen said, go to hell. Like, I'm not paying for 80% of the team only to get no say in what the, in the direction of the team. And and it seems like they told him the opposite to start off just to get him in the conversation. And then it's like, oh, yeah, no, no just kidding about which all is, that. Which makes sense because they're grifters. They're grifters of the highest order. You know, I know that everyone's like, you know, no one necessarily could have seen what Bernie Madoff did coming and that they're victims of a Ponzi scheme. And that's all true. But they're still grifters. This is just how the Wilpons operate. They, they, like you, as you noted, this is something that already happened five years ago. Like you said, they, they operate like mob bosses. They don't seem to understand that you, like, they can't just, you know, they, they can't just run things from the shadows while not paying for anything. Essentially, it, it's baffling to me. It's both baffling to me that this is how it turned out, and not at all surprising that this is how it turned out. You know, and I think. You, you certainly could have had your issues with Steve Cohen, especially given his whole, you know, um, extremely like money crime past with regards to the things he did in, you know, in his hedge fund days. But boy, like talk about like in the span of a month, the Mets lost the manager who was a, you know, depending on how you feel about, you know, that 2006 NLCS, a beloved player hyper popular guy loved across the league for for a cheating scandal they weren't even involved in which is i just always kills me that they were not even part of this and yet they still suffered for it and now they've lost the guy who if nothing else like even leaving aside cohen's again his, his very shady path at the very least was a someone who who seemed like a more uh trustworthy at least you know source of money and, and financial support than the Wilpons. 
And more importantly, B, was not the Wilpons. Because I think at a certain point, Mets, Mets fans will take Kim Jong-un could buy the team. And I think Mets fans will be happy at this point. They just do not want the Wilpons in charge. And, and they've just blown it up. It's all been blown up. And the Mets are just right back to square zero. Or, you know, I mean, granted, they, they have a, another manager now, Luis Rojas, who seems to be widely respected. But, you know, they lost their manager. They've lost their, 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 their kind of illusion of, of financial stability and security five years down the road. Um, it, it's, and now we're back to square. I shouldn't have said square zero. We're back to square one. Although with the Mets, it always feels like it's square zero. And then we're not even at square one. It, it would take work to get to, the, to that very first step. You know, it, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. Everything looked good. They hired Beltran. They were they were on the ups. You were like, oh, I could top myself in the Mets yeah, they, playoff they, team. They're making. Strides. They didn't even make. The, they didn't even. Yeah, their rotation looks. Yeah, great. they didn't even make the stupid Noah Syndergaard trade. Everyone was expecting them to make. Where I think we all spent the you know the last couple months of last season just convinced that they were going to sell Noah Syndergaard for like sixty cents on the dollar, and he was going to go win a Cy Young somewhere else. And Mets fans were going to spend the entire season smashing their heads in with a with a cinder block. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's very dark times. It, it's very dark times. Speaking of, uh, speaking of dark times, actually, I just noticed, uh, Twitter is saying the Mookie Betts trade is, is getting close here, folks. Oh God. Yeah. It looks like Ken Rosen, a bunch oh, of people God. saying, but I'll go, I'll go with Ken Rosenthal because we can always trust Ken Rosenthal. Both Mookie Betts and David Price would head to Los Angeles if Red Sox and Dodgers complete their blockbuster, a source tells The Athletic. Alex Verdugo would be centerpiece for Boston. Deal could be in place tonight for Alex Speyer. Would require completion of medical records. Speyer says, uh, like John Heyman, so I guess Heyman was one of the starting points here, that Mookie Betts talks have heated up. Red Sox are in advanced conversations with the Dodgers. A deal tonight is possible for Major League sources. RE Betts trade, it would send Betts and Price to the Dodgers, pending review of medicals. And, uh, our boy John Heyman says Dodgers and Red Sox are in serious talks now. Thought likely to happen soon. Dodgers still seem his favorite, though Padres haven't been completely out of touch. So this uh, this might be happening. This is this happening. Might be happening. Also, this is even this is a, this is why I was texting you about it. I was like, every, it seems like who I've talked to and everything else that this was happening. In the well, here, here today or here's an even wilder thing. This is Rosenthal again. Involvement of third team also possible in Red Sox Dodgers blockbuster. We got a mystery team. We had a mystery team here. Well, the Braves are always open for some more financial flexibility. So if we can get Nick Markakis in uh, in Boston, let's do it. He seems like a Boston out. Nick Markakis will literally die in Atlanta. There's he will just have. It's <laughs> going to be like the same way Tim Wakefield's career ended with like 18 straight like one year <laughs> deals with the Red Sox. They basically just kept. They basically just told him you can just keep playing here as long as you feel like it. And we will just keep giving you like six million dollars a year to do it. Um, Marcel Azuna, you're getting a one year tryout. Nick Markakis, what can we do? Do you want a statue? I, I like that the Braves have just kind of positioned themselves as a, as a place for for just pillow contracts. You know, Donaldson last year, Azuna this year. <laughs> you know, they they just don't want to make the long term commitment, but they're totally happy if a dude wants to come there, ball out for a season, help them win the division, and then go on to make more money elsewhere. Hell yeah. <laughs> You love to see it. What a great organization. Baseball's fine. That's how we should end all of our podcasts. Baseball's fine. Baseball folks. is fine. But uh boy, this is All right. Well, John, thank you so much, man. I uh, always a pleasure. Glad we were able to get this as uh it was also happening. So I appreciate Ken Rosenthal and everybody uh breaking the news while we're still recording. So it's not an outdated pod. Yeah, so I guess we'll have to see now if it actually does happen. I, I feel like at this point though, if if, if this many people are saying you know, it's close, it's close, it's close, and it is probably going to happen. But, boy. Well, what I need him to do is take a break and be like, whoa, the Reds, Nick Sinzel, Atlanta native, is getting traded to the Atlanta Braves for Ian Anderson and uh, Ender Enciarte and uh, something else. The corpse of Yonder Alonso. Oh, yeah, Yonder Alonso. That was a thing. Oh, I saw that news today, and it was just kind of yeah, sad. Yeah. It's just, it is always just kind of sad, like when, because late January, early February, like right before spring training, always brings those minor league invites for guys who used to be good like five years ago. This is the the this period of the of the baseball off season. Jason Kipnis just got an invite to the yeah. Games, this this period of the baseball off season is just one endless. Let's remember some guys. Time. Kipnis is a guy like oh yeah, Jason Kipnis. I forgot about him, and now he's just going to end up 
you know, being in spring with the spring camp with the Cubs, like, and he's going to hit like 200 in Cactus League and then get released in the last week of March. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, baseball's almost here, which is good. And uh, Mookie Betts, unfortunately for you, John, uh, you watched him play uh, for the last time for the Red Sox last I, If this is it, I will... Gone, but yeah, this is it. I will say that I dear, I deeply, obviously enjoyed the Mookie Betts experience, and I won an MVP, won a World Series. It's a lot of fun. Oh, this is, and it, like we've been talking about, this is just, this is just such a hard way for baseball to be, where teams trade stars not because of what they get in return, but because, you know, but because of what it what it saves them monetarily. And it's just, how do you stay a fan when that's a, when that kind of stuff is going on? You know, I don't know. Well, Nate, Nate Ovaldi, he's right there. He's right there to keep you keep you happy. Oh dear, he's there for three more years. Uh, oh, there it is. Okay, here it is. Here it is. <laughs> Passon, Jeff Passon. You can always be trusted. The Los Angeles Dodgers have agreed to a deal with the Boston Red Sox that would send star outfielder Mookie Betts and starter David Price to the Dodgers. Sources familiar with the deal tell ESPN deal is pending medical reviews. I. It's and there's Mark Feinstein, too. Source confirms Red Sox and Dodgers are deep in talks with the third team potentially involved. Verdugo is the headliner, prospect-wise, or I guess not prospect-wise, but you know what I mean. Yeah, pretty safe to say this is uh, this is happening unless all of these, unless all of Pass and Rosenthal and everything have been hacked, which, boy, that would actually make for a fun evening on Twitter. Yeah. And Amazon dating has arrived, so just a big day all around. There's an Amazon. For, there's an for all of us. There's an Amazon dating now. That got released today. Oh, I, guess. I know there was a Facebook one, which is just kind of bleak in its own way. <laughs> I think that's just called like that's just like the new eHarmony Boomer dating is Facebook dating. I would assume. Ugh, goodness God, no. Pass. Wait, I thought that was like that. Um, what's that thing called? The farmers only thing. I thought that was Boomer dating. Maybe, but if you're not on a farm, I think this is the alternative. That's fair. I have no idea. Um, I, I I did not think we would wrap up here, but John, we we must go. Um, while the the news continues to break, but I appreciate the time as always, good sir, and uh, we will talk baseball very soon, and actually about games and more stuff. Yeah, um, and about what like like closer. six weeks time, we've got real actual baseball. It's crazy. Yeah, we're almost there. We're almost there. All right. Well, John, thank you so much. Talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you, man. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you uh, to the wonderful guests for coming on today's show. Thank you uh, to my wonderful listeners for listening to today's episode. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, If you like today's episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, you can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash chase Thomas writer. Um, for as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas. You could go to chase Thomas podcast.com, which has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever, um, links to everything that you need. Um, and all of my writing that uh, I'm doing fairly often these days um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, so go read me on that front. So if you're not tired of listening to me, you can also read me. Um, so that's awesome. But uh, I think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode. Uh, I hope you continue listening. That would be great. And uh, I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.